The issue here is, can the Aboriginal community wait another two, three, four years to get something in place when there's a crisis and a matter of urgency where kids are being incarcerated, communities in remote areas are falling to pieces through lack of maintenance, job opportunities, cultural authority. They're the matters that can be immediately addressed by the Albanese government. They have a mandate. They've got an alliance with people in the Senate, with some of the independents, and people would openly come out and support Aboriginal people to address the current hardship. And I think that's important. It's also equally important that we use the momentum of the last decade or two of non-Aboriginal support because you can't do anything in this country without massive support by non-Indigenous people. And I think that exists, but I think it would be wasted. If we wasted that on a, a voice that had no function, had no power, was only an advisory role, and which could be overturned by governments anyway. There's a bit of a myth, a folly, that the voice will be permanent. Well, the simple matter of the fact is that the voice could constitute half a dozen people if, if the government chose. So it's a flawed system unless we sit around and co-design it with government. And I think that's the work of the Uluru Working Group. Now, for some reason, uh, the elite, whoever they may be, who I don't wish to name them, but the, the, the people who are running the uh, voice program at the moment tend to want to avoid grassroots people in their voices. And I think that's wrong. And I think it will be a missed opportunity if we don't immediately start to address some of the issues on the ground and plan for the future in a proper process. I think regional dialogue, a bit like at SICK, regional councils, you know, get a perspective from each region, remote, urban, wherever it may be, that was fine. That all then accumulated in a meeting at Uluru to talk about a statement. Now, I maintain that previous to the voice proposal, you had things like the Kalkaringi statement, the uh, Barunga statement, the Eva Valley, a number of other statements where... There were aspirational documents and principal documents where we talked about return of land, heritage, culture, language, etc. Now, to me, the voice proposal uh, was on an equal footing to that. But what happened at Uluru, the mandate, and this is where I think it's gone wrong, the mandate was with a group of people called the Uluru Working Group. Now, there are about 30, 35 people elected in that process from all around the country, and they were to then go out and develop the actual concept about what a voice might look like, how it might uh, be regulated, or you know how it sits in legislation or whatever. Then this idea that's come in that we needed something permanent because ATSIC was sort of at the stroke of the pen, was eliminated, the NAC, the... Uh, you know, all the uh, different forerunners of Aboriginal organisations were affected by government's change of heart or mind, if you like. Now, the thing is about what's being proposed is that this, there will be some security or permanency about the voice in the Constitution. What, what the statement will say is that there shall be not there will be, not that there will be some permanent, there shall be a body called the voice in, in the Constitution. Now, you cannot, under the Constitution, commit one parliament 
to a position as opposed to an incoming parliament. So they can change their position. And this is the uh, disillusion is that there'll be some permanency about putting it in the Constitution. The other issue about being in the Constitution, since the 1967 referendum, we relied on the goodwill of non-Aboriginal people to deliver some sort of permanency in relation to the Australian people saying we will be included in the census. The Commonwealth Government will have the power to make laws on behalf of Aboriginal people. And 90% of Australians voted in favour of that. We didn't get a vote in that, even though there might have been some advocacy for some sort of change. But since the 1967 referendum, Aboriginal people have been to the UN, including myself and a whole range of different people, that developed the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And in that, it talks about self-determination, the right to informed and prior consent. So there are some principles that any proposal that attempts to address the issues for Aboriginal people gained a majority of Aboriginal voice. Now, in this current proposal of the referendum, 90% of Australians will decide what's best for Aboriginals. So, you know, there's something wrong with that principally. There is something wrong with the proposal. There was something wrong with that. And the other point I'd like to make is that how many years have we been talking the Abaranga Statement? 30 or 40-odd years we've been crying in the wilderness for a treaty. Let's take the opportunity, if the Albanese government has got the political will and the support within the parliamentary system, go for a treaty. Let's have a treaty. Let's start designing a federal treaty that would complement some of the discussions that are going on in the Territory, uh, some of the discussions going on South Australia, uh, Queensland and Victoria. So it's time to act, not time to talk. We have prominent people all around the country whose voices are not being heard because there seems to be an elite uh, meeting where people are invited by invitation only and it's very selective. Now, that's, you know, that may be useful for some occasions, but it's certainly not the way in which Aboriginal people develop a concept that's going to look after the, all those groups out there, including the native title groups, including the land councils, the health services. They don't seem to have a voice at the table at this particular time. Because of the demise of the National Congress and, and ATSIC and, and those forerunners, there is a, a, a void, a lack of a voice for Aboriginal people. But I've got to say that most Aboriginal communities express a voice. You get enough black fellas in the room, mate, you've got a very loud voice. And you go back historically, the Federation Land Council, the coalitional organisations, NAO, you know, we, we form groups and have a very powerful voice, both nationally, statewide and even internationally. And so it's a matter of resourcing. And all of this process requires at this particular stage is that government provide resources so that people can complete the job. It is no point saying that there is a mandate for the, uh, the voice proposal when it's only another document that was set out a number of principles. And when you look at that document, it talks about truth, treaty and voice. Who has selected the voice as the priority? We think that the voice of whatever description it may take needs to be designed by Aboriginal people for Aboriginal people. And if non-Indigenous people want to vote for that, then they do so at our calling. They do so with our consent, not now that we just put up a proposal and say, well, this is the best we're going to do. Like, it's just, just not good enough.
Lots of people have been elected to regional councils, land councils and whole organisations. Those people elected are the grassroots and the people. These people are driving this, to my knowledge, and have never been elected to any prominent position. So they represent universities, institutions, whether it's industry and others. So it's not the voice from the grassroots, it's not the voice from the ground. And I thought that was a major selling point with the dialogues. You know, they went around to every state. They had a number of meetings. They invited prominent people from organisations, etc. And that appeared to have worked for that first phase. But this second phase requires something similar where people can get, turn up to these forums like there is no capacity for the Uluru Working Group to meet and discuss these. We were mandated from the Uluru Statement uh, and have had probably a handful of meetings in the first year and that was it. So, you know, there's a huge void there that needs to be filled. I don't want to denigrate people who, who are trying. I think there's some honour there. There's some, there's some goodwill there. Um, but I think at the end of the day, what you have in this country is a conservative element, you know, and whether they're black or white, you're in the white society, you know, you'll have left and right, green, centre. Uh, and I think that's the voices coming from a very conservative focus. I think that it's people who believe in assimilation. Like, you know, to become involved in the Constitution means that you then endorse the taking over of our sovereignty, taking over of our lands, and you come under the, all the rules and regulations because you consent to it. Now, that, to me, is a bigger question. That's a question for a referendum amongst Aboriginal people as to how we accept it, and, that, and that's what you would resolve in a treaty process. You would address the issue of representation. A body could be represented in the parliament by several odd seats, and then they would be truly loyal to the Aboriginal vote. So... You know, I'm advocating an Aboriginal role, so Aboriginal regions, if you like, advocate for a person to sit in the Senate and, and you feed back directly into a system. But, you know, all these things need to be uh, designed. I don't see the discussion about it. All I see is a group of people who are probably wishful or hopeful that they will be the ones appointed. Like, it does, the voice doesn't even tell you whether people will be elected or appointed. I'm bewildered by it all. The average Australian, with goodwill, would probably think, well, we're doing our best because, you know, there's a lot of money thrown at this campaign for The Voice. Uh, people don't quite understand it. But, you know, you go to any referendum question, 24 out of the 25 that were proposed were defeated because people don't necessarily understand the detail. And it's very difficult to sell the detail. And particularly in Aboriginal affairs, where there's complex questions about culture, law, land, entitlement to resources, entitlement to speak your language, teach your language in schools, all those matters. In the past, we addressed those things, and it's not necessarily the answer to have another body that has no power uh, that can be then branded about the world or nationally and say, well, that's their opinion. We will take notice or we will reject their opinion. And what happens then? A stalemate. So you need to have teeth. You need to have power. Without the detail of that, no one in their right mind, as far as I'm concerned, would be voting for a voice, which would be an absolute pity because people want some sort of structure to represent their politics, their, their, their culture, their law. People, they want to be able to 
have control over their affairs and their communities like we had in the past. And um, I think it's a shame that we will waste this opportunity in the next two or three years. Quite frankly, the Albanese government could announce that they will set up a treaty commission tomorrow. There's a parliament sitting in the next two weeks. They could come out with a draft of some sort of legislation tomorrow. Aboriginal people living on country are the eyes and the ears of their community. Have a look at the global economics. The only reason that Australia is sort of viable at this particular stage is, is the minerals that are coming out of the ground. And we're getting a pittance of that. Not that I'm anti-mining, but, you know, the issue is that move people off country, pretty easy to move in and start, you know, have a look. I, I believe they're talking about the fracking now in the, in, in the Territory. You know, who's out there watching people, you know, surveying, uh, sampling, uh, staking claims? Like, you know, if you're living in, in poverty, living in town in despair, your kids have been locked up, your health is, is failing, pretty hard to fight a political campaign. So I don't want to be sinister in all this there, but, you know, it appears to me that it's convenient to round up the Aboriginals like 200 years ago, put us on reserves, in this case, they're now rounding us up, you know, sitting on the fringes of town and deal with it as a welfare problem, not as an honourable situation where they recognise that we own this land, that we have a strong culture, a strong law that operated, and we're entitled to the benefits that our land may produce. Now, if you wanted to do something, being a part of that working group, I would propose that ADSIC was a good model, even though people have got some doubts because of the uh, misinformation uh, surrounding ADSIC and you know, allegations of uh, uh, not being run properly, etc. Um, if you put that aside, ADSIC could be the regional council model. The one thing that ADSIC lacked, or a body such as ADSIC, was representation in the Senate. Now, you could have one from each state and territory position whereby we would have a voice in the Senate. Unlike what's happening at the moment, the 10 or 11 uh, Aboriginal senators are aligned to their parties, whether it's Liberal, Labor or Greens or otherwise, and that affects their judgment or that affects their ability to represent an Aboriginal voice, if, if you like. So, you know, there are other methods... And one of the unfortunate things that is occurring at the moment is that the Albanese government is not allowing debate, not resourcing Aboriginal people to be able to sit down and work these things out. Like, was a proposal. Someone's gone wrong. It talks about a voice that has no power, has no capacity or, or resources, an advisory body only. Like, that's just a ludicrous situation in 2022 that we're even contemplating a position such as that. You know, let's be honest. What's required is on the ground, regional type arrangements or councils, if you like, where Aboriginal people control their own affairs. The demise of the CDP, there is no reason for people to stay in remote communities anymore. They're all drifting to town. There's no employment opportunities. There's housing issues, whole range of social issues that occur. You know, the elders' voice is breaking down, the authority of elders. You know, Aboriginal culture is sort of under threat. Uh, in terms of connection to country. We know that to move people off country leaves the country vulnerable to development. And we're not anti-development. Like, while you're on country, you control, you know, the processes, your eyes are on the ground, 
you know who's coming on country, you know who's doing what, you're carrying out cultural activities like cultural burning, range of things that maintain uh, the environment and, and the sustainability. So there's all these issues that could be done practically. The Albanese government has got a majority in the Senate. They've got the numbers with the crossbenchers. They can put in place tomorrow legislation that returns some sort of ownership, some sort of control, resource it, tweak it, put it through Senator estimates. If you think that, you know, there is some concern about misappropriation or whatever, that's never been the case. And if you think it was the case, do something that sort of can ensure that people will be comfortable because the majority of Australians at the end of the day will be voting. And I think the majority of Australians, there is enormous support. Like the, the, There's no doubt that the pendulum swung back uh, in favour of some Aboriginal uh, rights or issues, and I think that's where you need to take it.